Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin. It's easy to refer to the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic as unprecedented, but human history is littered with epidemics and pandemics. One that was worse by every measure was the Black Death, which killed tens of millions of people in the mid-14th century with a mortality rate almost 10 times that of the current COVID-19 outbreak. History professor Emily Graham, who previously discussed the burning of the Notre Dame Cathedral in episode 5, joins us to compare and contrast the modern and medieval pandemics. And though both are dark times for humanity, she reminds us how these situations reveal so much inherent goodness in people. Part of your expertise is about the bubonic plague and the way uh, people live through that. Yes, that's something I often teach on in my classes. I've also taught on um, sort of the experience of pandemic in history going forward into the early modern period. And then it also touches on concerns about pandemic and epidemic and how society and culture cope with that in modern outbreaks as well. Which sounds perfect for our discussion today. I mean, obviously, I keep hearing comparisons between COVID-19 and especially the one that seems to come up the most is the Spanish flu. I'm curious what comparisons you are seeing between what's going on today and what you've studied in the past. It is eerie, almost, how close some of the comparisons are. Obviously not between the diseases themselves, but many of the challenges are the same in terms of um, how you try to prevent infection, you know, the government's role in that, the role of religion in both how people cope, but also in some people's uh, resistance to quarantine and other orders, as we've seen some churches are you know, doing wonderfully, they're making digital services available, but some are also, there are a few cases, I think, in Louisiana and Texas, and maybe Florida in particular, where churches are still trying to meet in defiance of governor's orders. Some of the practicalities are also still the same. Um, how do you expand the availability of medical treatment? Um, you know, so in the Middle Ages, for instance, they set up the same kind of temporary hospitals. Uh, that we see now. You know, I think of the hospital that has been set up in Central Park, for instance, in New York. There were many of those sort of temporary care situations uh, in the Middle Ages as well. And some of the grimmer realities of facing a pandemic, like the need for expanded, at least temporary burial capacity. We're already seeing news, uh, you know, from a few months ago about the preparation of burial pits in Iran. Um, and there's even been talk uh, circulating of temporary burial pits in um in New York and in other locations as well. One of the other interesting things that I see is that there are economic reactions uh, to the Black Death. Um, There are both restrictions on trade and an effort to sort of curtail what might be considered non-essential businesses (laughs) in today's parlance. Um, For instance, there's this outbreak in Edinburgh at the end of the 15th century. And they order that first there should be no travel and no visitors between areas where there's been an outbreak in the city. Um, And this is on pain of banishment from the town and confiscation or burning of all of their goods. So this, they were pretty serious about this. Yeah. Wow. And then as the plague went on, um, they also forbade the trade of any goods and that they had to provide a license. They were coming from a place without an outbreak if they wanted to trade it all in the town. Um, Again, under pain of having their things burned and being thrown out of town. As the plague kind of wound on a year later, there's two places where the outbreak seems to have been endemic, Haddington and Kelso. It was ordained that no one in the city could host anyone from these two major outbreak centers, Haddington and Kelso, on pain of death. 
and no one from those places could come to Edinburgh without being branded on their cheeks and banished. So that that's intended to scar you for life. And, you know, capital punishments like this were not unusual in the Middle Ages, but this means that they really meant business. They understood that there was a very grave danger to the town um, in coming from those places. But it's also really interesting they include commerce as a source of potentially dangerous transmission in these statutes because it shows that they understood, as many other places did, who uh, sort of limited economic activity during times of outbreak. They understand that that's a source of potential transmission, even though it will cause the town to struggle economically. The, the closure or lowering of, of, of businesses and economic activity, that is also a sacrifice that communities have made in the past hmm. um, in order to try to uh, keep their community safer. I think there's also more hearteningly um, similarities to be drawn in terms of the human response to neighbors' needs and ne neighbors' suffering. During the Black Death, you see some of the same sort of selflessness um, in terms of those who are prepared to risk their own health by caring for the sick or uh, ministering to them spiritually as well. You also see people's willingness to give up their normal routines, their normal lives, um, to try to stop the spread of contagion. And that's another thing that's very similar. Um, the medieval response to outbreaks, not just of the bubonic plague, which we call the Black Death, but also other epidemics, or even just local outbreaks of disease, uh, was very much like shelter in place. And you get some of the same orders for closures of businesses. You get some of the same restrictions against visiting other households um, or hosting visitors, things like that. I am a big fan of history. I love history. And I always say if um, people are saying history is boring, they're being taught history poorly because it's just fascinating. It's good stories. Um, and I also believe, uh, this is not an original idea of mine, but one of the benefits of learning history is you learn about human nature. People are the same. Circumstances change. But people are people. And so you see things like this pandemic that is similar to what we've been through in the past. And you're talking about how we're seeing people react the same way. First of all, do you believe that same thing about the study of history? And do you think this is a good example of that? I mean, at its heart, history is the study of the human experience. Um, and I think that there are certain things that make us very distant from the past, but there are also commonalities. You know, the, the social structures and our kind of cultural experiences, they change and they shift over time in ways that make the past sometimes look like a foreign land to us. Our concept of how we measure time, for instance, would have been very strange to someone living, you know, a thousand years ago or, or 5,000 years ago. But I think there are really sort of heartening, reassuring similarities. You read experiences of of romance or of concern for family. That kind of human emotional bond, I think, is expressed differently, but I don't think it goes away. Mm -hmm. And I, I also see, coming back to the, the plague theme, in some of the reactions that authors during the plague talked about uh, as widespread in society, I see a lot of similarities there too. Probably the most iconic narrative from the Black Death, which is actually the second pandemic of the bubonic plague, there have been three. This one was an outbreak in the mid 1300s, 1347 to 1352. And it started, we believe in Central Asia and spread to cover all of Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Europe. And Giovanni Boccaccio in his famous text called the Decameron in the introduction talks about the experience of 
the plague in the city of Florence, which is, was a thriving urban metropolis at the time. And a couple of the things he says have really resonated with me um, over the past few weeks as I've been reading the news. One of the common reactions was to the plague was for people with means to leave the city, to go into the countryside. And we're reading articles now about people who are in urban areas who are, you know, leaving for smaller towns or vacation homes or things like that, if possible. Another thing that he talks about is, um, you know, a small group of people who had little disregard for the safety of others who would flout quarantine. You think of uh, these very few cases of people sort of hoaxing others by deliberately coughing on them, or, you know, they're just a few cases. Most of them are hoax reports. Um, but that kind of report in the news made me think of Boccaccio as well. And there are those who took a kind of a fatalistic approach to life as mm -hmm. a result of their perceived danger. And I think you only have to read uh, any sort of social media platform to find someone who's, um, who's taken that sort of view. One of the other things that Boccaccio talks about is the difficulty of getting carers to care for the sick in their own homes or to care for those who are already ill or struggling. And I think about some of the discussions around nursing home staff, around the um, difficulty of people who maybe aren't on the front line of healthcare, but who are working in other people's homes, um, providing really essential care, and how difficult it's been in some areas to have people people doing that work. The report of the nursing home that closed recently um, because the staff didn't turn up, things like that. And I know that's not the majority of the experience. Many of those carers are, are very selflessly um, working for others' safety. And that's another thing that turns up. Uh, there's an account of a plague outbreak in Newcastle in the 17th century in England that actually talks about how neighbors would climb into boarded up houses the town authority would go around and board up your house if you'd come down with the plague to prevent you leaving and infecting others. And they would actually climb up into the second story if they needed to in order to go in and provide food and care for you and stay with you until the disease had run its course. And so that kind of selflessness as well is also represented in plague accounts. So yeah, I see a lot of common areas in terms of human reactions to the plague. One of the more disturbing reactions has been in historically, um, and that you can also see in some news accounts today, is uh, scapegoating. In the 14th century uh, in Europe, Jewish communities were scapegoated because there was a very poor understanding of how the Black Death occurred. Um, and how it was transmitted. There were all kinds of wild rumors, just like today on the internet, <laughs> lots of wild rumors, uh, lots of misinformation circulated and grew wildly. One of the more common pieces of, of misinformation and slander um, was that the plague was caused by um, local Jewish leaders poisoning wells. Mm. Um, and so there was terrible Jew violence against Jewish communities in many locations across Europe, in Spain, and it was particularly bad in Switzerland and Germany, where the Count of Savoy actually captured and imprisoned two leaders of the local Jewish community and had them tortured into giving false confessions, which were then widely circulated as anti-Semitic propaganda um, and led to the killing of many, many uh, members of the Jewish community in that region. Obviously, there has not been widespread violence, thankfully, as a result of this outbreak, but there have been disturbing news reports um, about prejudice against people who in the U.S. are Asian American or in other countries who are of Asian descent. And there have been isolated incidences of violence as a result, which is very, very disturbing um, and sounds familiar from previous outbreaks.
it seems to me when you study history, one thing you find is racism, xenophobia, bigotry, like that is as human as it gets. It doesn't make it right, but that just seems to be human nature, isn't it? We're, we're always going to find a new thing to separate ourselves. We always have, it seems. I choose to not believe that that's human nature because you see in history both instances, yes, of xenophobia um, and yes, of you know the marginalization and and mistreatment of peoples who who look or behave differently. But I think you also see a great capacity for the construction of of relatively peaceful multicultural societies. Mm. And you see it not just in the last century, um, but many, many times over the course of history. And so I choose to believe that that kind of intolerance and hatred is not endemic to the human experience. Mm. I hope I'm proved right. Yeah. Well, I mean, Martin Luther King did say the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. So when you study pandemics, as you do, I'm sure... Well, I, okay, so I want to clarify. I teach them. They're not a subject of my okay. research. They come up okay. in my research simply because the people I study live through them, um, but I do teach on them much more. And you said, I believe, and up to the, the modern era... Yeah, so when, I, when I've taught before in the past on the bubonic plague, I've taught seminars on it, and because in order to understand how historians have understood the history of the Black Death specifically, that has really been shaped by modern outbreaks. It wasn't until the big outbreak of the bubonic plague in Asia in the 1890s, for instance, that historians were able to give a modern medical name to the disease they knew had recurred in great waves um, in the 500s to 700s and again in the 1400s to 1600s mm. um, across the world. So a lot of what historians do has actually been shaped by the more recent history of disease and how we have come to understand it now um, scientifically. And medically. And then, of course, you know, anytime you're discussing any of this, people also bring their own lens to the table, to the discussion, right? And a lot of the lens of how we understand the idea of pandemic or how a society copes with it is the result of what we see around us. So, you know, the, the biggest one in, in my lifetime has been the AIDS pandemic. But then there's also been outbreaks of Ebola, uh, that are another example. Of course, more more recent analogs to COVID is is the SARS outbreak. Mm. And of course, you have the flu every year, and then you have special like the H1N1, right. right? Right. And I think one of one of the things that I think it's important to understand is that human history is full of examples of plagues, of pandemics, of epidemics, and of simply recurring local outbreaks of disease. Um, so our cultures and our society, even our governments, for thousands and thousands of years have been developing coping mechanisms to try to deal with this, even before we scientifically understood exactly what the diseases we were facing were. So this is why you find examples of uh, governments having quarantine policies or shelter in place or banning gatherings uh, like weddings and funerals as a response to the outbreak of plague. They may not have had a perfect scientific understanding of what they were facing, but they understood the basics of contagion. And they understood that this was a way to at least slow the result. Another sort of eerie correspondence that I see uh, between the past and today is that the cruise ships have been so much in the news for their struggles. I just read a piece today, for instance, about how even though many passengers have uh, been allowed to disembark, there are still cruise ships with staff aboard who uh, cannot disembark and who are still aboard. 
and medieval port cities were very, very familiar with instances of plague. Um, and so they even had procedures to examine crew uh, and passengers before letting them off, letting them dock. They had a practice of sometimes turning away what they called plague ships hmm. um, as a result or of quarantining even those who appeared healthy uh, when they first arrived, if there was an outbreak elsewhere, if they were coming from somewhere where there was danger of an outbreak. They might quarantine even seemingly healthy sailors and passengers, uh, usually for a period of 40 days in Europe. The period time length of the period varied elsewhere, and 40 days is based in part on, uh, it's a common period of time used in biblical sort of stories, but their, their decision to quarantine even seemingly healthy people does indicate that they understood that there could be an incubation period for disease uh, before mm -hmm. symptoms showed, um, which given their level of scientific and medical knowledge that they had at the time is, is really fairly impressive. Mm -hmm. That leads to something I wanted to ask you. you you're talking about the Black Death in the uh, 1300s, mm -hmm. so very limited scientific understanding and, and education among the populace for that matter. Mm -hmm. How did that pandemic come to an end? It's a good question. So I'll just give you like my little potted lecture on the Black Death <laughs> and you guys can reorganize it or cut it however you want. Because <laughs> this has some basic stuff that I, you know, I kind of got, got away from at the beginning. And if I keep talking about it, I should probably talk about what it is. So the Black Death is the bubonic plague. It's an infection caused by Yersinia pestis, which exists in the world all around us, in nature. And it's transmitted to human populations through um, animal-human contact just like several other pandemics that we're familiar with, including COVID-19. There are three known pandemics that resulted uh, as a result of this animal-to-human transmission. The first was in the 6th through the 8th centuries in Asia uh, and um, also around the Mediterranean. The second was what we call the Black Death outbreak, and that began in 1347. That immediate outbreak ended in 1352, but the important thing to understand is that these pandemics are recorded as covering several centuries because there were recurring waves. Mm. Anywhere between 10 to 30 years later, it would return. So uh, many people who experienced the first great mortality of the Black Death would have experienced it again in their lifetimes. And that's up until about the mid-17th century, when that second pandemic subsides. And then the third great pandemic was from about 1890 to 1930 and mostly affected Asia, although it also interestingly affected San Francisco from 1900 to 1904 and then 07 to 08 as well. And there are also modern instances of very small um, pockets of bubonic plague in the modern world. Ireland had an outbreak at the same time as San Francisco uh, in about 1900, but even in the 20th century, there were several outbreaks in Madagascar in 2014 and 2017. Um, the 2017 wow. outbreak actually was thousands of people and it killed 170 of them, mm. so substantial. There have been isolated cases of like hikers coming into contact with it, being hospitalized. Um, I think there was a guy in Colorado a while back in the US. Just last fall in November, three people in China contracted the bubonic plague. And a recent study of Yellowstone cougars estimates that in recent years, as many as half of the population have had the bubonic plague. Yeah. I also want to mention that while the mortality rates for the bubonic plague were very high in the past, it is absolutely treatable with modern antibiotics. It is not something that we, living in a, a developed country with a, a relatively 
good modern healthcare system should be afraid of now. I don't want to alarm anyone listening to this. This is simply a historic example that we're talking about today. So uh, this big outbreak in the 14th century is kind of the classic one people talk about when they talk about the bubonic plague. And this is the circulation of Yersinia pestis, um, which largely occurs among rodent populations, marmots, uh, rats, some people argue gerbils, I'm not so sure. Uh, so it's transmitted by the bite of a flea that prefers to live on rats. But if the rat dies, presumably from the infection, the rat flea will then jump to the nearest warm body to keep itself alive. And sometimes this is smaller animals. Humans really are not their preferred host, but they will go there um, if they have no other alternative. And this posed a real challenge to uh, medieval physicians because Unlike something like COVID that spread through respiratory droplets, that they understood. They understood that not just COVID, but like something with the common cold or the flu, that if you're near a person who's sick and you're breathing the same air as them, you're more likely to get sick with the mm -hmm. same thing they have. Because the bubonic plague didn't have the same sort of vector of transmission as everyone else, it seemed sort of mysterious uh, to people how you got sick. It's also because there was like a seven-day incubation period. So, you know, you might get bitten by a rat flea when you stopped at an inn, you know, one week and not get sick to your home the following week, not having been near any sick people in the meantime. And so it created a great deal more fear uh, that there was less understanding of this as a normal kind of contagion. So this spread um, across the populations of three continents and the mortality rate we believe was anywhere in your, the av was an average of 50%. Yeah, wow. I was checking the numbers just before this call and uh, COVID it looks like right now is about 6.2% worldwide is the mortality rate. Yeah, and in areas with a sort of more developed healthcare systems, I think it's it's lower. It's it's more like three to five. Yeah, I think I saw it was uh, like five percent in Oklahoma right now. So one tenth what you're talking about, which is still tragic. We're talking talking about about human beings in terms of the the sheer scale. Looking at numbers, um, the Black Death yes, was far, far larger um, in terms of the mortality rate. And then the recurring waves were anywhere between 15 to 40%. And there are debates about whether that's because acquired immunity of those who had survived a previous plague and recovered from the disease, or whether there were other factors uh, that made it less deadly in recurring waves. And so this sort of spread from 1347, it spread more slowly um, because of the slowness of land and, and sea travel. It didn't reach some isolated mountainous areas until 1351, 1352, like, like Russia, for instance, um, or other parts of Northern Europe. It either did not reach certain areas or it struck a community um, and simply went through the population. I would love to tell you that there was some kind of fantastic cure that was discovered or invented, but as, as there will be, as we will get a vaccine for COVID-19, but in the 14th century, uh, they weren't medically at that point where they had the capacity to, to do that. Now there were attempts at treating um, the Black Death. Probably the most uh, standard and successful was that treating one of the more visible symptoms of the Black Death, which was the plague bubo that gives the disease its name. So bubo is simply an infected lymph node and they would often turn black as they swelled, which gives the disease its name, the Black Death. Now, as it swells, one of the more common treatments was to lance it or let it burst on its own. 
and there seems to been a, have been a higher rate of survival among patients who were ill and then um, had that happen to them, either had it lanced or burst, but it was by no means a cure. There were still plenty of patients who had the bubo lanced or drained and died anyways. We also have to take into account that the medieval surgeons performing the lancing didn't have an understanding of how to disinfect mm-hmm. surgical implements. So they may have very well been introducing in new infections into that wound uh, to an already you know, weakened um, person. A lot of the medieval attempts to treat the Black Death medically was hampered by the fact they didn't have an accurate understanding of our physical systems. They didn't have an accurate understanding of the human body and its workings, much less immunological responses. And so there were there was an, a huge gamut of responses to treat the disease. Some were surgical, like lancing the bubo. Um, some involved dosing with herbs. Um, some involved simply controlling the atmosphere around the patient, um, making sure they either got enough fresh air or did not get fresh air, either exercised early on or were restricted from exercise. Uh, There's one instance of a physician who actually recommended sexual activity uh, if the patient felt like it um, (laughs) as a potential cure. I mean, there are all these, you know, theories about how the human body worked in the Middle Ages that came out of the understanding based on the ancient Greeks, that the the body was controlled by a balance of the bodily humors, mm-hmm. um, and that any illness was the result of those humors becoming imbalanced. And so a lot of medieval medical treatment had to do with efforts to rebalance the humors through diet, through exercise, many things today that we understand are involved in mental and physical health, generally, but don't consider to be often specific to medical treatment. And then of course there were herbs, there were ointments. Um, These varied widely, um, but were usually drawn from the natural world because that's what people had to hand. And there were also attempts at sort of superstitions and and magical cures. Um, And of course, many people turned to religion. So there was a a wide variety of of attempts to stem the tide of the bubonic plague. We are um, hearing a lot of talk nationally today about getting the right equipment for healthcare workers, the right um, masks and things like that. I'm guessing a doctor, I'm going to use that term broadly, back then, I mean, are they just all dying? They're, they've got to be exposed so much and not have a good understanding of how to not be exposed. I mean, I think doctors understood they were at a higher risk, and so did priests who often attended the sick and the dying uh, Mm -hmm. to give them last rites. And there were certainly um, high mortality rates among those two professions. The medical profession was also a bit different in the Middle Ages in that professional medical training was restricted to sort of upper-class men. It only occurred at uh, a few locations throughout Europe, a few dozen maybe by the early 14th century. And they were very expensive. So really it was only sort of the the merchant class and the aristocracy, um, or maybe if you were very, very well off peasant, you could afford their services. The broad majority of the population's medical treatment would have come from home remedies or maybe a local uh, sort of herb woman um, Mm. who had knowledge that was passed down through her family and sort of collected over time. Now, some of these remedies were effective. We know from studying the properties of certain herbs that were prescribed at that point in time um, that they did work. You know, foxglove contains digitalis, which affects your heart, and it was used to treat heart ailments. Do not try this at home. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely do not. It it can actually be dangerous, taken in quantities. There was a a remedy uh, that was in the news 
some years ago about Bald's Leech Book, uh, which is a medieval manuscript, and this Anglo-Saxon antibiotic that was discovered from that, which used the incorporation of garlic and a different uh, sort of plants of the same family that were crushed and then mixed with cow bile and left to sit in specifically a copper vessel for nine days. And they studied this in a scientific lab and found that, oh, actually, it's a new antibiotic that modern medicine was not previously aware of. So some medieval medical treatments would have been effective, but many of them would not. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about is we as a society have dealt with these things before and we've learned valuable lessons, right? Like you're talking about quarantine, you're talking about medicine. I would imagine there's got to be part of the reason that the mortality rate is lower for COVID-19 is, yes, we've advanced as a society, we've got better medication and all that, but part of that is because we dealt with things like this in the past. I mean, so I'm not an expert on public health, but I have to say, looking at my period, the strategies like social distancing Mm -hmm. uh, that we're using now, that appears historically uh, in textbooks as well. I can't say that there's a direct line (laughs) from five or 600 years ago to today, but yes, many of these strategies um, have been developed over a long period of time, although they've certainly been better understood and refined as modern disciplines and and, the field of public health has, has evolved today. One thing I have heard that is a concern of mine is that this that social distancing is working we're seeing the curve flatten in oklahoma and and in america and the something similar happened say with the spanish flu and people went back out and it came right back because suddenly everybody was around each other again did that sort of thing happen with the bubonic plague there's not a simple answer to that unfortunately (laughs) Um, because of the nature of the historical records but also because of the nature of the transmission of the disease. And here I'm gonna go again into a little bit of the nitty gritty. So the bubonic plague appeared in three forms in the 14th century, uh, bubonic, pneumonic, and septicemic. Um, And the pneumonic form was passed through respiratory droplets, but it was not as common. I can't say with certainty uh, that there were resurgences of the disease as social distancing or quarantine uh, was lessened. Certainly I can say that in the past, social distancing and quarantine were not as, effect- as effective as they appear to be today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually very, very encouraging to me that they do appear to be working very well. And speaking of encouraging, when we're talking about something like the bubonic plague with a 50% or so mortality, and people don't really understand what's causing it or how to cure it, and society made it through that, and we're still yeah. here hundreds of years later, that is encouraging to me because I know. I don't think anybody's afraid that COVID-19 is going to kill everyone, but there is a fear of, will we go back to the way things were a year ago? And should we? I mean, what should change? But this does come to an end at some point. At some point, it's not consuming all of our attention as a society. At least that's the way it's been in the past. Mm -hmm. As I've been thinking more about these connections uh, that I see uh, in how we react to pandemics and to outbreaks uh, as, a, as a society, as a culture, as human beings. One thing that I've really been bolstered by is that the one thing I can really take away from it is how resilient human society is. You see that in the 14th century um, after the pandemic, you see people coming together in some of the old ways, but also um, innovating financially, economically, um, innovating socially, innovating 
you know, culturally, artistically. It is certainly not a society that is the same. Uh, they are not unscathed in any way by the passage of the Black Death. I am very interested already uh, by some of the ways in which our society is adapting uh, and coping with the the strictures of social distancing, um, with the worries thrown up by something like COVID-19. I'm really heartened by the prevalence of arts organizations, of other organizations that are able to use these wonderful digital tools um, to keep a presence in our lives. So this is, as some of you may know, we're recording this on the one-year anniversary of the fire that devastated the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, in which the roof burned, the famous 800-year-old um, roof burned, the 19th century spire that was really an iconic part of the Paris skyline collapsed uh, in a very dramatic moment caught on camera around, uh, shown around the world. There was a great deal of debate immediately after the uh, cathedral fire as to how stable the building was, what had caused the fire, and how it would be rebuilt. There is no question it would be rebuilt, um, but how would it be paid for? Would it be an exact replica of the former spire? Would there be a new modern design? And I talked about some of the ideas that had been put forward for that a little bit in the last podcast, uh, specifically on the fire itself. The current thinking is that the fire was probably caused by a cigarette, probably um, the result of workmen working on the roof to do some repairs and restorations that were long overdue. There has been an international competition to decide how to rebuild the roof. That has not come to a conclusion yet. They haven't chosen a particular design. So we're still waiting to hear on that. Funding is being amassed for the roof, but it's not fully funded yet. And there are some intimations that the site is more delicate and more dangerous to work at than previously thought, that there may be lead dust contamination from the lead that was used to waterproof parts of the roof, and that uh, the building itself may be more fragile than previously expected. The French president, uh, Macron, is still saying that it he expects it to reopen in 2024, but uh, the general currently in charge of the restoration project is being a little hesitant to confirm that outright. He says it's not impossible, which isn't exactly a ringing endorsement of the title. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, recently, a small Good Friday service was held there in order to, to kind of continue to use the parts, stable parts of the cathedral as a sacred space and as a sort of center for hope. And I found that really interesting because to me that ties together these two, these two topics. Um, because the service was being held um, on Good Friday, which is a very, very resonant holiday for Christians. It featured uh, several high-ranking ecclesiastics in the church, some of whom were wore appropriate personal protective equipment, but nevertheless they were, they were there. And that speaks in part to me about the importance of prayer and the importance of place and prayer in responses to previous epidemics and plagues as well. Part of the way that medieval people understood plague an epidemic was as um, something that had been divinely visited on them. And so one of the common strategies to kind of bring an end to plague or be healed from it was prayer and penance. And that took a number of forms. Um, there were Catholic saints in the later Middle Ages who were uh, sort of patron saints of plague as a specific kind of disease. And so you might go on pilgrimage to their shrine or to a nearby statue of them or a church dedicated to them. You might bring offerings to the shrine um, or simply say specific prayers to them. 
as an attempt to alleviate the effects of the plague on you or on your family or community. Now, obviously, pilgrimage in which you're traveling to other locations and prayer services, public prayer gatherings, are not really in the spirit of sheltering in place or social distancing that was at the root of some of the local civic government strategies to dissipate the plague. So you see some of that same kind of tension there that you do in some of today's religious groups that want to remain open and continue to hold services despite social distancing orders. One of the other really interesting things that comes about in terms of religious reactions to the Black Death, specifically in the 14th century afterwards, is that it gives rise to new ways of thinking. So there are some indications that agnosticism, disaffection with religion may have been on the rise. John Arnold has written a little bit about this, but there were also new religious groups who emerged who focused specifically on the need to do penance, to dispel the effects of the plague, to prevent another recurrence. One of the more interesting and kind of dramatic of these groups were called the flagellants and they operated mostly in germany um, and they would travel from town to town they would process and sing hymns and they would ritually flagellate either themselves or each other as a way of publicly uh, it's called mortifying the flesh um, so causing pain in order to do expiation for their sins it's a practice that is now very seldom practiced but was practiced and even in the middle ages it was seen as seen as kind of extreme and uh, so that's one of the sort of more colorful groups that came out of this you also see an expansion in sort of disaffection with the clergy as a result of the black death in europe in particular, and this gives rise to uh, certain groups who kind of break away a little bit from the Catholic Church, who are like the monolithic religious presence, although by no means the only uh, religious group in Europe at the time, but certainly the largest. And so you get the evolution of heretical groups like the Lollards in England or the Hussites in Bohemia, uh, some of whom become entangled with political affairs or uprisings. There's a war in Bohemia as a result um, of the rising of the Hussite movement. And the Lollards, many of their ideas resurface about a century later in the early support for the Protestant Reformation. Although there's no direct link um, between the groups, they're certainly putting these ideas out there and circulating them. So they become part of kind of public awareness and discussion. So a lot of this comes out of the generations following the Black Death. There's also really strong economic reactions to the Black Death. And as the discussion in the US turns toward recovery, reopening the country, the effect of the shutdown on our economy, that's kind of been present in my mind as well. And there are some resonances between what happened um, in the wake of the Black Death, particularly in England, we have good documentation for this, and a little bit in Italy and here. For instance, in the immediate aftermath, you see uh, price gouging, and there are some stores be and you know sellers on Amazon and so forth being accused of that right now food scarcities, breakdowns in supply chains in the Middle Ages. There are certain steps that the government takes to try to remedy this. One of them is um, price fixing. So for instance, in England in 1350, about a year and a half after the Black Death reaches its shores, there are wage and price regulations fixed that in London that try to fix the rate of pay for certain jobs or the charges for certain goods. And we can actually tell a lot about what they as a society valued and what was changing in society in reaction to the scarcity um, by reading documents like this one. So for instance, building supplies, clothing, 
uh, food and drink feature heavily in this, but also carters, the people who transported goods, especially food, they also feature in many documents like this, which tells us that just like the truckers, right, who are being identified um, as particularly at risk for COVID and a particularly vital piece of our supply chain, you know, they appreciated the importance of regular transport in the supply chain then as well. Mm. The wage caps were necessary in part because you also start to see people demanding better terms for their labor. Now, this could be a lower rent on their farm. It could be a higher wage for a job that they're doing, or it could be better working conditions, food, better quality food, better working hours, that kind of thing. And that, uh, to me, speaks very much when, to me when I see news items about, for instance, efforts to get better pay for what are considered frontline workers, mm -hmm. right? in the current crisis, um, not just healthcare workers, but also essential workers, grocery store employees, Amazon employees, some of whom are, are organizing or trying to organize. There were actually in the decades following the Black Death, uh, this kind of escalated into a series of uh, uprisings, one of which was among the wool workers in Florence called the Chompi. Now, I'm not saying that they were unionized. Uh, that's definitely not a medieval uh, concept, really. But they certainly were demanding uh, better work working terms for themselves as a group. So, you know, there's definitely this kind of questioning, uh, the kind of, you know, momentary maybe lapses in these systems um, certainly caused people to kind of re-examine, were they working for them? You know, how is this working for me? Is it not? Is, you know, is there a chance here to make things better? I was doing just a little bit of reading to prepare for this, and I was reading about a pope who effectively just quarantined himself to avoid the plague? So during the Black Death, rulers took a variety of approaches um, to try to preserve themselves and preserve their courts. Some of them went to remote locations. Some of them remained in place but closed themselves up, isolated themselves, sheltering in place, basically. Some of them took kind of more esoteric protections. Clement VI, for instance, was told by his doctors that if he shut himself away from the world and surrounded himself with light, that the influence of, because they, they thought the plague was a demonic influence, yeah. and that this would provide him a measure of protection from it. Despite that, he did continue to be involved in policymaking. This was also the period when there were pogroms and massacres against uh, communities, against Jewish communities, and in the case where false uh, confessions were being circulated in Switzerland and Germany, causing some of this violence, he actually issued a papal bull denouncing the violence and saying, this is false, you know, this is not the fault of these communities, you know, do not do violence against mm. them. Yeah, a really kind of a mixed figure, but considered a considered a, a very good statesman. One of the things I like about history is you come across these people that are lived hundreds or thousands of years ago, and we still know who they are. It's often because if it's a person who made a big enough impact that we know who they are hundreds or thousands of years later, they're a very impressive individual. You know, go back and read about Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. Or and sometimes fact, very unimpressive. <laughs> well, yeah, true, true. I, I, I guess that is the other side of the coin. But I remember you and I having a brief conversation um, off mic after the last uh, podcast when I was saying, you know, I don't want to play a video game where I'm a peasant. I want to play one where I'm a king. And you were basically defending peasants and explaining to me how interesting peasants are. 
I mean, to me, when we're thinking about responses to plague, the experience of everyday people is also really interesting because they're um, often in the Middle Ages, um, people, the majority of the population lived in rural communities that were relatively small, and they depended on this intricately woven network of family and friends. These were communities where you bartered uh, for your everyday necessities, you know, sold eggs, somebody uh, kept bees and sold honey, somebody was really good at baking bread, and you kind of trade amongst yourselves for what you need, as well as trading a little bit with a further afield for specialty items. So when something like the plague comes along, you're faced with a decision that will be familiar to anybody who's watched a post-apocalyptic movie, wow. right? Do you stay? Do you run? What are the risks if you stay? Do you stay for your family and maybe suffer and die along with them? Do you pack up your immediate family and go and abandon your extended family and friends? Do you leave knowing that you yourself may be a carrier into the outside world? And these communities understood that. There were some communities who had a localized outbreak of a disease and would choose to self-quarantine the entire community so that it wouldn't go further afield, which was an amazing um, choice of self-sacrifice mm -hmm. at the time when there were no cures, no decent medical treatment, and there was no way to really understand the progression of a disease and its spread. Um, they simply knew that by cutting themselves off from aid from the outside world that they gave their neighbors a better chance of living in nearby communities. So when you think about average people who had, you know, home remedies, maybe one local wise woman uh, to treat them, uh, not that effective medical treatment, there wasn't good communication and information like we have today about what's going on, where this comes from, what to expect. You look at some of the choices that they made, and it is it continues to impress me um, every time I read some of these stories with their their bravery, their resilience, their resourcefulness. I see a lot of that in the individual stories that are coming out of communities coping with this disease now. You know, I think of uh, these videos that are circulating on Facebook of everyone who's socially distanced, and you know, in uh, in Italy, for example, who are having these balcony parties where a whole street will go out on their balcony and sing and dance and kind of connect across distance mm -hmm. in a way that's safe for them. And I think that is, you know, some of the same spirit that I see in these earlier documents about sort of everyday people doing their best with limited resources, limited information in a very different landscape to ours, um, but facing all some of the really same challenges. Mm. Yeah. And uh, another thing I have uh, been told about history is it's easy to think of people from, you know, the, the distant past, go back far enough, whatever you think that is. It's easy to think of them as stupid. And, and I mentioned before, you know, education certainly was not as prevalent. And even among the most educated, they didn't know a lot of things we know today. But people weren't stupid, right? I mean, they were, they didn't have the same base of knowledge that we do, but they weren't dumb people. No. And I mean, many of them were actually really brilliant people. For instance, let's take this idea of being educated, right? So today that means being literate and numerate, right? Knowing some math, knowing how to read and write, basic educate grounding in science, history, and literature, and so forth, music, art, um, everything you study, right? In a, in a sort of general education curriculum, mm -hmm. <laughs> as we do at OSU. And then you look at the past and, okay, there weren't formal schools, unless you got really lucky um, to live near like a monastery or a cathedral that had a school that would teach you to read and maybe even to write, and teach you other languages and so forth. But 
people did receive an education in fairly complex concepts that were really critical to their community and had real value. Learning about food preservation before the, the period of refrigeration, you know, that's a really necessary skill. Learning craftsmanship, blacksmithing, shoemaking, things that your community really needs and that are technologically, you know, fairly sophisticated if you look at what's required to turn out you know, a good, you know, metal tool uh, just from iron ore uh, and so forth. These are actually pretty sophisticated things that you need specialized tool and years of training to do well. And so those are four kinds of education too that they mastered. This is also a period in history in the late Middle Ages where you have the kind of complex business ventures. You have kind of economic tools that we use today. You have insurance, you have corporations, you have the use of credit and uh, long distance banking relationships. Um, you have people who are wholesalers. You have all kinds of kind of mechanisms of long distance trade uh, and regional and in the few cases, even global economies, when you think of, of things like the Silk Road or trade within the Mongol Empire, which stretched across Asia into uh, the Middle East and Eastern Europe, for instance, these are not things that are easy to run, right? This is not a world in which everyone's just living in their little hamlet, you know, without, and we know from records that people were deeply interested in the rest of the world. They thought and told stories, they interrogated travelers, you know, to learn about the world around them as best they could. Um, so these are people that are deeply curious, um, that are experimenting, and in fact, um, if you look outside Europe, for instance, um, in Asia or in the Islamic world at the time, you actually find that there are new branches of science and mathematics being founded in this period. There is fairly advanced medical treatment by the standards of the period going on. So yeah, there's a, there's a whole range of knowledge, training, and even within one small community, you'll have a, a range of people um, with different capacities and abilities. You'll have people who are very devout. You'll have people who are, we have records of atheists from the Middle Ages. Um, we have records of you know, people who were skeptical, they were skeptics. You know, they questioned everything. They wanted to know the whys. And if you look at, rural communities in particular, people were actually very savvy about their rights and about the law because they were their own lawyers in court. And so when they appeared to defend themselves against, you know, these legal cases that um, were, you know, really significant to them, they had to really know their stuff. Um, so these are people who were educated uh, in, in ways that really mattered in their world. I'd like to thank Professor Graham for joining me, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, I hope you and your family remain well. And with that, we'll end with our standard final question, how are the arts and sciences making the world a better place? I think the answer in this moment to me is, is very obvious as we're in the middle of a pandemic and we see some of the amazing advances that science is bringing us both in the treatment um, of this disease and rising to the challenge of treating it, of um, limiting the exposure of those who are endangered, um, and also in making progress toward a vaccine. That, you know, has to be my first answer. Um, in terms of how the arts and humanities are making the world better now, I think that's also really obvious to me because I have been overwhelmed uh, since we started social distancing a month ago at the time of recording this um, with this outpouring of 
materials and resources of free streamed concerts um, of everyone from Willie Nelson to Bruce Springsteen to the Metropolitan Opera. Museums are providing free free visits at zoos. Um, you know, there are there are plays, there's visual artists um, who are um, circulating art related to this. Um, and you know, all of this encourages and addresses these common issues that we share, not just around the physical threat of the pandemic, but also this difficulty um, that we as a society face in coping with the challenge of social distancing and what that does to our society and community. And I think the arts really provide us with a lot of different ways of understanding that challenge and what we're going through um, and of facing it together. 